0: Now, our sermon text from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as a fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace
1: be with you. Thank you. It is an honor to be with you this morning. It's wonderful to see all of you. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Paul Ramsey. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, It's a joy to preach, uh, a joy to gather each week for worship, uh, and here we are continuing a series that we began last week uh, through a few passages. We'll be in the book of Acts in selections for seven weeks. This is the second of seven weeks looking at the mission of the church. And so let's jump in. The biggest problem I think that we face as humanity is that we are divided. Uh, pretty much anyone you listen to, any news source you look at, any, uh, anyone speaking about anything to do with our culture will say that right now we are experiencing a time of increased division. I don't have to work very hard to explain that to you. It's almost a fact in itself that doesn't need backing up. Our culture is divided and seemingly increasingly so. Likewise, the church in America, at least, is struggling with division. And unfortunately, it seems that that's increasingly true over time. Our own homes and families, whether you're talking about your relationship with your parents or a parent or a brother or a sister, if you're married, your relationship with your spouse, if you have kids, your relationship with your kids, the relationships they have with one another, humanity is divided. Seems like the relationships that we want to have with one another seem to be harder than they should be. If only there were a way for that division to be dealt with. You see, for Christians, historically speaking, we believe that Jesus in his death tore down the dividing wall of hostility between people. It's a historical fact that the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, that in Jesus' death, he did, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Why then does it seem that in so many places, this dividing wall is still erect and is still working, dividing people from people? How will we be, we be brought back together again? How can we live in harmony as humanity once again. As we look at our passage for today, we're going to see that the first arrival of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church of Pentecost was an extraordinary experience. God sends the Holy Spirit in a way that was accompanied by miraculous signs as a demonstration of his presence. And the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to through their words, begin the reunification of humanity. How can humanity come together in unity once again? The answer is in this passage. And so as we look at what we've been given today, we're going to look briefly at the story up to this point to catch up on some important background information, and then we're going to look at three main things. We're going to look at what happened, we're going to look at why it happened, and what it means for us today. What happened, why it happened, and what this means for us. And so to begin with some important background information, I want to look at a story, a feast, and a promise. The story I wanna bring up briefly is from back in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible in chapter 11. After the story of the flood, which God brought upon the earth as a result of the sin of humanity, Noah and his family were preserved through the ark. And a number of generations after this, Noah's family had grown to be rather large. Um, There were many cities and they actually, they all came together in one place. You may be familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel this growing family of humanity set their minds to, a, to an interesting task. At this point in history, all of humanity shared the same language and they just invented the brick, which was an incredible uh, technological innovation in terms of construction. They could build buildings stronger and taller than they ever had been built before. And so they came together and said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And what's interesting, about this endeavor is is that these people were at least partly right. God's intention in making humans in the first place was for relationship with him. So from the moment of the fall of humanity in the garden of Eden into sin, God has been at work throughout history, preparing once again to dwell with his people. And so the people who came together to build the tower in Babel, building a tower up to heaven because they wanted to be reunified with heaven and with God in relationship, that part was right. The problem is that their solution was to come together and build a tower themselves to heaven. But God knew that the solution to the relational problem between God and humanity was not to be found in humanity alone, but in God himself. Trying to build or climb our way up to heaven as mere humans, will only ever result in increased suffering, increased injustice, increased strife, it won't work. And so in response to their efforts, God confuses their language by giving them new languages, which effectively disperses them across the earth because they can't talk to each other. And so they move further away from each other and they develop new cities and new nations and new places with new languages. The story of the Tower of Babel leaves us wondering, how will God bring humanity back together and dwell with them again once more? We don't have to wonder very long, though, because that was Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. When when we come to Abraham, we get our answer. God chooses Abraham to be the father of a multitude, a great family through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so in the face of this climactic scattering of humanity that, hand, that, that, that happened at the Tower of Babel, God has brought us to Abraham through whom the blessing would come. So that's the story. Now let's move on to the feast. Generations after Abraham, his descendants multiply and grow into the nation of Israel. Israel as God's chosen people, has been preserved and protected by God and blessed by him. And as a part of the law that God gives to his people, God instructs his people to keep a series of feasts to remember his provision for them uh, and to keep his promises of future restoration in mind. There are seven feasts that Israel was supposed to celebrate, three of which were known as pilgrim festivals, festivals where people would come from across the land to gather in Jerusalem together uh, for a purpose. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. When we come to our passage, we come to one of those feasts. Verse 1 of our passage says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost is the Greek name for the Jewish festival, the Feast of Weeks. It was, it's the second of these pilgrim festivals, and Pentecost was one of the most popular pilgrim festivals. It was even more popular than Passover. It was a harvest festival coming 50 days after the first day of Passover, when people came together to offer at the temple the first fruits of their annual harvest as thanksgiving for God's provision. That was what the festival of Pentecost was about. And this annual practice of gathering in Jerusalem was something that God's people did for centuries. It was a rhythmic experience for the ancient Israelites in calling them together for feasts and then sending them back out to their lands. God was showing his people something. There's a section of the Psalms devoted to these journeys. It's called the Songs of Ascent. You may be familiar with them. It's from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, I think, 15 Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Uh, The city of Jerusalem is built on a hill, Mount Zion. And these Songs of Ascent, which they would have sung repeatedly year after year as they were going up to Jerusalem, ascending to Jerusalem, focused on things like peace and mercy and restoration. And so as we read through these psalms and also through the prophets of the Old Testament, we see that Jerusalem became was not just a, of course, it was a physically significant place, geographically speaking, but it was also a spiritually significant place for God's people. According to Jewish tradition, the name Jerusalem comes from two words referring to rest and peace. And in a world marked by contradiction, for the Jews marked by on the one hand, a desire for rest and peace, and on the other hand, the reality of strife and toil. Jerusalem, the place where the temple was built and the place where the presence of God dwelled was a symbol of hope for the resolution of this contradiction. Considering the story of what happened with the Tower of Babel, it's not hard to see the significance of this rhythm of coming to Jerusalem and then scattering back again in the life of God's people. The rhythms of the feasts were teaching them something, teaching them to live in expectation of the coming restoration of God. When God scattered people across the face of the earth in the Tower of Babel, the question was how will God bring people back together? As Dodds preached last week in the story of the Ascension, who can ascend the holy hill? How will heaven and earth ever meet again? this inward outward phenomenon would have been marked by a sense of expectancy as God's people came to Jerusalem, singing songs of peace and mercy and renewal. God's people would have been practicing their hope. And then when they went back to their homes, it would have been a bittersweet journey sweet because they would have, it would have been marked by gratitude to God, for giving them land and homes and and provision, but also bitter in that they were reminded every time they scattered again, that their promised restoration hadn't yet arrived. And so these feasts were rhythms of hope and yearning and hope and yearning. And so for the disciples who are gathered here on Pentecost, they had just watched Jesus die, rise again, and then ascend into heaven. And here they're engaging in this centuries old reminder, rhythmic reminder of the blessing of God, which comes in the form of a plentiful harvest and expecting that the Lord's coming restoration is near. Which brings me to the promise We've looked at a story, a feast, and now let's look at a promise. There are many promises that God gave to his people through the prophets of the Old Testament about the restoration that was to come. One of those promises came through the prophet Joel, through whom God ties together the celebration of an abundant harvest with the coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 23. This comes before, this is several hundred years before Jesus. Joel says this. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So I'll pause there before reading the rest. Joel promises you will eat and be satisfied. This is a group of ancient Israelites who had been scattered in exile, and Joel said, "The coming provision of the Lord is at hand. It's, there's coming a day when you will eat and be satisfied." Then Joel continues and says, "This. This is what Peter goes to quote just after our passage to explain what's happened at the at Pentecost." You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else and my people shall never again be put to shame and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. You see, as as God's people looked forward with expectation for God to bring his promised restoration, they were told to expect abundant provision. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Our minds might go to the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But then what Joel goes to immediately after this promise of abundant provision of food is the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. The prophets had foreseen a day when the Spirit would be poured out, not just on the leaders of God's people, on the kings, the priests, the prophets but on all flesh. Joel says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this hasn't happened yet. Our minds might go back to the words of Jesus, who said, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And so here are the disciples gathered at Pentecost, expectant for what the Lord might do, what the Lord had been promising for generations. And what happens? The Holy Spirit is poured out on all who are gathered. There's this double entendre of sorts in the first. Uh, There's a eighth grade SAT word for you. Uh, At the beginning of the passage, there's a word here that's pregnant with meaning. Acts 2 verse 1 begins with the words, when the day of Pentecost arrived. That's a word that also means fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. There are several places where Luke, who's the author of Acts, does this to show that yes, indeed, the time has come around. The time has been fulfilled. But this event is the actual fulfillment of what the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost meant to point to. This is what God's people have been waiting for since Joel spoke those words. The promised Holy Spirit comes not to Israel as a whole nation but to this small group of people who believed in Jesus as Messiah. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So in the story of Babel, God gives people new languages that scatter them across the face of the earth. In the Feast of Pentecost, God has been giving his people this rhythmic experience of gathering and scattering, reminding them of their hope in the promise of restoration and the reality that the promise has not yet been realized. And in the promise from Joel, we see that the the coming restoration will not only be marked by an abundant feast that will leave his people fully satisfied, but afterwards, he will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And then we come to the disciples in Acts chapter 2, gathered in the upper room, waiting for the arrival of this promise, and the Spirit comes. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to look at our passage in Acts chapter 2 and consider what happened, why it happened, and what this means for us. So first, what happened? Read with me Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, "...when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting." and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is, a, this is an amazing event. The Holy Spirit, God himself, comes to take up his dwelling place with his people. What happened here is that they received God himself. And to help understand what this means, there's a few things that I want to point out for us. First, we see that God's presence is real and tangible. It was both audible and visible to the disciples who were gathered in the upper room. When I became a Christian my freshman year of college, I found myself having spiritual conversations with all kinds of people. One of the more interesting conversations I remember having was at an ethics talk at our college where I was sitting next to... They brought in a speaker to talk about ethics, and I wound up sitting next to a guy who had become a friend of mine who was from the Baha'i faith. I think it was Baha'i. It may have been Jain, but it it was one of the Eastern religions. And we were talking after this talk ended. We were invited to discuss some of the ethics questions that the guy had spoken about to us, and we were talking about who God is and what he's like, and I remember saying something along the lines of... I haven't seen God, but I know him. And this guy next to me said, oh, I see God all the time. This uh, Baha'i man. He said, when I see someone perform an act of loving kindness, I see God. When I see truth prevail, I see God. Whenever I see something beautiful or breathtaking, I see God. Over the years, I've met many people who say things like that. Many people take the concept of God into the abstract and simply identify God with beauty as they see it. But you see, I I remember that conversation distinctly in part because it happened at a time when I was learning so much about God. I'd been a Christian for less than six months at the time. And my kind of intake of learning about God was super steep learning curve. I was reading the Bible in a small group of guys learning as much as I could about God and how he works. And I remember not knowing what to say to that guy in that conversation. I think I just nodded to him and said something like, I I see. The thing is, when we look at this passage, we see that the God of the Bible isn't simply an abstract concept in an ancient text. He wasn't just a teacher who lived once and then died and left his writings to guide his followers. God is not just some concept of what is good or right or beautiful for us to pursue and to come up with on our own. No, God is a real, tangible, powerful, and personal being. God created all things by the word of his power. He was born as a human being. He died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And here he is really tangibly present in the person of the Holy Spirit, filling the entire house where they were sitting as a real, audible, visible manifestation of his presence. As he tries to describe what happened, Luke is forced to use metaphor. Did you catch that? He says, it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The tongues were divided tongues as of fire. As one commentator put it, Luke was well aware that he was using metaphorical language in these verses by carefully employing adverbs of comparison, like a mighty rushing wind, tongues as of fire. He was dealing with the transcendent, that which is beyond ordinary human experience and can only be expressed in earthly analogies. See, what the disciples experienced in this upper room was an experience unlike anything that they had ever been through. Therefore, there were no words to describe the phenomenon literally. So Luke has to use metaphor. This is common in the Bible, particularly with the prophets and in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, lots of like and as of statements to describe things that the prophets see that they don't really have adequate words to speak of. And the images themselves, wind and fire, here in our passage are significant in the Bible. Wind phenomena were almost, were were almost always accompanied by God in the Old Testament. Fire, the appearances of fire phenomena, those were almost always associated with appearances of God in the Old Testament. In the Lord of the Rings, uh, you may be familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings. Frodo is given at one point in his journey a sword called Sting that turns blue when, he, when orcs are near. This is not a perfect illustration because orcs are the bad guys, but it becomes Frodo's way of knowing when orcs... Are there. Similarly, when you see miraculous wind or fire in the Bible, that's a way of knowing that you're encountering God's real manifest presence. If you see wind, God's probably there. If you see fire miraculously, God's probably there. And here we have both. To quote that same commentator again, the coming of the Spirit is described in three carefully constructed parallel statements, each pointing to an aspect of the event, a sound like a mighty wind came and it filled the house tongues as of fire appeared and one sat on each of them and they were filled with the Holy spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues. The emphasis for Luke is on the objectivity of the event. It was audible. It was visible. It manifested itself in an outward demonstration of inspired speech. So this is one thing that we're supposed to see here. God's presence is real and tangible, audible, visible. It wasn't abstract, but God is concrete and present. God literally showed up in the room with the disciples. Second thing that we see under what happened is that we see that God's presence is not just external, but deeply internal. The Holy Spirit filling his disciples wasn't just something that happened out there. It was something that happened in here. The event begins with this powerful sound filling the whole place where they were gathered. And then verse 3, Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We get the picture here of one big flame, which represents the Holy Spirit, separating into many different tongues of flame with one resting on each person. And this is where things get real for the disciples. God is taking up his dwelling place with his people. It's literal, it's personal. The person of the Holy Spirit comes to take residence inside a person. Too often in the history of humanity, our problems are seen as problems of knowledge. And we think the way to relieve the problems, to alleviate the problems we face, is to just find better knowledge, to think better thoughts. Too often over the course of the story of humanity, the the solution has been salvation by right thinking. In our culture today, go read the right books, talk to the right people, find the right roadmap, and you'll get there. Here, it's the opposite. They have the roadmap, they have the word of God, they have the knowledge of the resurrected Jesus, but they can't do it, and so they wait. And sure enough, God himself comes to fill his people in a way that empowers them for the journey ahead. So over against a culture that placed philosophy and knowledge above everything on one extreme, and on the other hand, placed the gods at an untouchable distance, here we have the personal God who created the universe who raised Jesus from the dead, coming to live inside his people. Christianity is much more than simply a a life philosophy or a way of viewing the world. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with a personal God who lives inside of you. Not a wishy-washy, your future is inside of you. You just need to find it kind of thing. But God himself who created you, who loves you, living inside you, who comes to lead you by the hand, as it were, towards the way of life. So first, God's presence is real and tangible. Second, God's presence is internal and personal. And the third thing that we notice in this passage is that even as it's deeply personal, the presence of God is a shared reality. Notice in this event, this isn't a bunch of disciples experiencing me and God moments. This is an experience of us and God. If you look back at verse one, we're told that they were all together in one place. There's several times that amazing things happen in the story of God's people through the book of Acts. And it's usually when they're all together in one place. And in verses three to four, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Each of them, 120 disciples, about as we're told in the middle of chapter one, were gathered there and each one of them received the divided tongues as of fire, which in turn filled all of them. No one was left out from this moment. I was talking with a friend of mine who told about a church at home that was a little bit more of a charismatic church from his upbringing. Charismatic meaning they talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was doing. They had these prayer meetings and he used the phrase... In most of the prayer meetings, there was a time when the atmosphere shifted and everyone felt it. When they were praying and the Holy Spirit filled the room and there was a time, he he used that phrase, there's a time where the atmosphere shifted. There's a sense throughout the scriptures that when the Holy Spirit moves in community, oftentimes all will notice. When you read the, 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 the verses in first Corinthians 12 through 14, where Paul talks about or uh, 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 talks about worshiping in the context of the spirit filled church, often when the spirit moves, all will experience it. In other words, this isn't a secret personal experience kind of thing that the disciples are experiencing at Pentecost. When we talk about the spirit's presence in community, we're talking about what we see here. We're talking about a shared experience, a shared reality. The fourth thing we notice about what happened in this passage is, is that this is a passive event on the part of the people who are gathered there. Did you, did you notice this? There's nothing that they were doing in order to receive the Spirit. There wasn't some set of practices. There wasn't some right lifestyle that they lived in order to tip the scales in their favor, finally leading God to say, okay, now I can fill the church with my Spirit. No, God's real presence was graciously given by God out of his love, entirely by his grace and in his timing. That's because the connection between God and humanity is a relationship and it's not just any relationship, but we're told, Jesus tells us several times that it's a relationship between a father and his children. As a father, I know what it's like to serve and provide for my girls without them having done a single thing to earn what I'm giving them. and. I want my girls to know that for their whole lives, there's nothing that they need to do to earn my gifts or more importantly, to earn my love. It's already theirs. And this is an imperfect analogy because I'm not a perfect father, but God is a perfect father. He's a good father. And when we look at this passage, we see that the people have not earned the spirit. We see that God graciously gives it to his people who are simply gathered together in one place. And he's delighted to give of himself to them. Verse four, they were all filled by the spirit. Not they filled themselves or God responded to their fill in the blank by filling them. Simply, they were filled. I don't like to make much of grammar, but this is a passive verb. They were filled. They did nothing while someone else, God, did the work in them. Similarly, for you and for me, we wait and we ask. We don't earn God's presence or get it with some kind of incantation or with fancy lights and music. We don't usher in the spirit. We simply receive the spirit as a gift by God's grace. And so that's what happened. What happened at this event is that the disciples received God himself, God's real tangible presence, That is not merely external, but is deeply internal and personal. His real presence that is a shared reality and that is a gift of God's grace. That's what happened. God filled his church. The disciples received God himself. And now, why did this happen? The answer is that God's presence was always meant to be with his people for a purpose. And we get a window into that purpose as we read on. What's the first thing that they do when they receive the Holy Spirit? Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the moment they were filled with the Spirit, what did the empowered people of God do? Did they do miraculous signs? Did they perform all kinds of mighty works and healings? No, they spoke. They opened their mouths and spoke. And we're told two things there in verse four about how they spoke. One, they spoke in other tongues. And two, they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. One, miraculously, God gave them the ability to communicate in languages languages that they had not heard before. And two, this is no idle talking. This is talking as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's a particular and somewhat rarely used word. It refers to someone talking with gravity, with authority. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to prophesying the prophet speaking as the Lord gave them utterance. So in other words, when these disciples were filled with the spirit, they began speaking with a miraculous authority from God. And for what purpose was this authority used? Let's keep reading. Starting in verse five, verses five through 11. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Stop there. So when they started speaking, they started speaking in other tongues, other languages such that people from all over the region heard them and understood. Have you ever read this and wondered why Luke specifies all of these different people? Were you wondering why I just read all those different names when Adam just read it a few minutes ago? Why does he specify all these different people? There's 15 groups mentioned here. And we're told that they're all Jewish people from different places. As we see in verse five, these are devout men from every nation under heaven. God's people who had been scattered in exile and dispersed among the surrounding nations who were back in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And it is this crowd representing the whole of the Jewish diaspora, which is what it was called, all of the Jews who had been dispersed across the known world that witnessed the miraculous arrival of the spirit. And so in this way, we see this is a pivotal moment in human history and in particular, the history of redemption, according to the Bible. Why did all of these nations exist in the first place? We talked just a moment ago about the tower of Babel. God had given the people different languages, causing them to scatter across the face of the world. And God had always promised to gather his together, his scattered people. And here we have Jewish people from all over the world together in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit comes and fills Jesus, disciples in the upper room, they begin speaking in other tongues as the spirit gives them utterance. In verse 11, each of the men present, hears them telling in their own tongue, the mighty works of God. Do you see what's happening here? In Babel, humanity tried to build a tower up to heaven. Here at Pentecost, instead of humanity, building a tower up to heaven, God brings heaven down to earth and begins building a new structure with his people being the very stones with which he's building it. And how is God building this structure? This new temple, the church, he's building it with spoken words. In the beginning, God created all things through his spoken words. When God establishes people under the old covenant, he did so through words through drawing near to them and speaking to them, giving his word to them upon which for them to build their lives. And here in an act that is unmistakably an act of new creation, he fills his people and once again gives them words. But this time he writes his words on their hearts and gives them words to speak in such a way that they can now participate with him in the building of his kingdom, in the reunification, in the gathering of his people altogether once again. So in this incredible reversal of Babel, rather than giving them words to scatter the people, he gives them words to unite them. I said, amen. Rather than having humanity build a tower to get them to God, excuse me, rather than having humanity build a tower to get to God, God comes down to humanity and invites them to build, only not upward. They don't need to do that. As Dodd said last week, we've already ascended and been seated with Christ in the heavenly. So rather than building upward, we are now building outward, expanding the temple that is God's presence with his people until it reaches every tribe and tongue, every nook and cranny of the earth. As the prophet Habakkuk said in Habakkuk chapter 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thank you. Amen. As in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve to be co-laborers with one another and with him filling the earth with his glory. And now God's new people filled with his spirit are once again empowered to be co-laborers with one another and with him that the earth might be filled with God's glory. And this helps us to perhaps rightly understand the invitation of the Christian gospel, the invitation of Jesus. The invitation is not merely believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. That's certainly true, but it's more than that. The invitation is believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit who will empower you to be an effective ambassador for God's kingdom and glory, working shoulder to shoulder with the rest of God's people, side to side with brothers and sisters in the family of God who are changing the world, not in their own strength and wisdom, but by the presence and power of God as he gives us words to speak with one another and with the world around. Look with me at verses six and seven. It says, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Did you catch that? When they say, aren't these Galileans, that would be like saying, aren't these a bunch of country folk? How are we hearing them speak in this way, in all of these different languages? Galilee was known by the cultural and religious elites of the time as a backwater farming, and fishing region, and yet it's these unlearned people, these unlearned men and women who are telling of the mighty works of God in the native languages of all hearers. You see, if there had just been one language, then the gospel may have just been seen as shut up in the small corner of Jerusalem, or excuse me, of Judaism. But as it is, God enabled the gospel to break out from just the people of Israel. The gospel breaks out in this moment across cultures, across time and space. This is just one example of how good God is, right? Different tongues were given by God to separate humanity as a way of addressing human pride. And here, by the glorious grace of God, those different languages which came initially as a consequence of pride are here turned around and used beautifully as a redemptive gift for the unity of God's people. And there's this undertone in Genesis 11, and even Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, and even here, in the in 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 the being given new language, there's an undertone that digs below plain language and simply the ability to speak in a language. It's truly an inability to communicate effectively, even in the same language. Speech and communication aren't necessarily one and the same. The effect of Babel meant that people were unable to communicate, unable to collaborate etc. From collaboration in the garden to competition at Babel in everything, husbands and wives, parents and children's, ch- children, neighbors, politicians, and so on. Rather than being marked by collaboration, humanity was marked by competition as a result of Babel. There was this inability to communicate, even if you're speaking the same language. That probably sounds familiar. But the Spirit empowers true communication, true language, true speech and collaboration. And so what happened here? In receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, the disciples received God himself. Why did it happen? So that God could empower them to join with him together in the building of the kingdom in his own image with their spoken words. And finally, what does this mean for us? This means that when we take up the invitation of faith to follow Jesus, we are invited to live lives of expectancy for God to move in our midst. It means that we are invited to live lives of expectancy for God to move in our midst. It's clear that the miracle that happens here comes from the Lord directly. There's no illusion in this passage that these people were just a smart group of people who could speak in a bunch of different language. This miracle happens on account of the work of the Lord in in his people. And even after this event, this event is loud and miraculous and public, but even after this uh, uh, public event, when we follow the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see the believers devoting themselves to seemingly ordinary things, like coming together for regular worship, enjoying meals in one another's homes, praying and loving one another and the people around them well. And we see that even through these ordinary means, God works powerfully among them by his spirit. Here's the thing. You might not see yourself as particularly eloquent. You might not see yourself as an expert in theology who can go toe-to-toe with cultural elites. And if that's you, this means that you're exactly where God wants you to be. These 120 disciples were waiting for the arrival of God's promised presence and power, because even though they were rejoicing in their encounter with the risen Jesus, They knew the task ahead of them was too great for them to engage on their own. And it's these Galileans, these country folk, these non-experts who God empowers to speak with a miraculous authority concerning the things of God in the heart of Jerusalem, in the midst of perhaps the biggest pilgrim festival of the Jewish faith, surrounded by religious leaders and experts who have to look at one another and say, what does this mean? You may be one of the few in in the church who is a gifted apologist, who can engage on a philosophical level with the mistaken underpinnings of the secular post-Christian worldview. That may be you. God has raised up people like that before. But for the rest of us, on account of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are no less effective ambassadors than them. Through ordinary living, marked by seemingly ordinary things like loving God and loving the people around us, God is able to do extraordinary things. When I think about the mission of the church, there's a number of strategies that I've heard given by pastors in churches across our culture over time for what missional presence, for what living as missionaries in the world looks like. And you know what it doesn't look like? You don't hear a lot of pastors saying to their churches, you know what we need to do, guys, is we need everyone in here to enroll in seminary and get a master's level theological education so that we can answer all the questions that anyone might ask us about our faith. That's not the strategy that pastors are using in churches. Instead, there's all kinds of examples. One of my favorite examples is the acronym BLESS. If you're wondering what it looks like to be effective missionaries, to pursue mission uh, in the context of everyday everyday life, think about the acronym BLESS. This is an example from a number of pastors that I know. They've used this with their churches. B-L-E-S-S, begin with prayer, listen to people, eat with people, serve people and share your story. Begin with prayer, listen to people, eat with people, serve people and share your story. Those are remarkably ordinary things. Begin with prayer. You might not know what to say. You might be too nervous to walk up to someone who doesn't know Jesus, and you know they don't know Jesus. Or you might be perfectly comfortable walking up to them and having a friendship with them, but if it to- comes to talking about things to Jesus, you might not be ready. So begin with prayer. Start praying for them. Listen to them. Actually listen. Ask questions and listen. Learn the cry of their hearts. Learn how to be a good question asker. Eat with them. We all eat. Just eat a meal. Something happens when you eat meals with people. Serve people. Mow your neighbor's lawn. Ask them if, you know, ask them if they have an ingredient to the, to the meal that you need to cook and then be ready to offer them something when they ask you next time. And then share your story. Not come up with the perfect three-part or five-part gospel presentation. Just talk about what God's doing in your life. Maybe through that testimony, maybe through that testimony, those people will hear about a faith that's actually a personal relationship and not just a set of philosophical principles to ascribe to. You might not see yourself as eloquent or as particularly educated in the things of God. You might not see yourself as a very significant person in another person's life. But if you know God and you receive the Holy Spirit then you get to live your life in expectation that it's not you building the kingdom of God yourself, but God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the Holy Spirit within you who will guide you and empower you for the work that he's placed before you, witnessing to his glory, to his love and mercy, to those he's placed you around. So as I close, let me just ask a couple of questions. Think about the past two years for a moment. In a world marked by polarization and division, in a world marked by disappointment and unmet expectations, what kind of person have the last two years made you? What kind of person have the last two years made you? Have they made you a more isolated person? Have they made you a more self-centered person, right in your own eyes? when everyone else is wrong? Have they made you a more cynical person, lowering your expectations about anything because it's all gonna be bad anyway? If so, I hope that you hear in this passage a message of hope. I hope that you hear in this passage a message of encouragement, that simply leaning into the presence of God with one another we get to expect that God will work powerfully in our lives. The mission of the church is to see the nations brought together under the Lordship of Christ. As a result, our lives should be marked by expectancy that God will be doing just that. Not us in our own strength, but God will be doing it through us. And it'll catch us, at, it'll catch us by surprise at times. You don't know when your neighbor is gonna ask you for something. You don't know when your brother or sister is going to be in need of a conversation that might change their life if you simply tell them a story about how God has showed up in your life. You never know when your prayer is going to be answered. You never know when eating a meal with someone changes the trajectory of your life. The apostle Paul was started off as a Pharisee which means that he was a religious leader in Judaism who was very opposed to the Messiahship of Jesus. And he was slaughtering Christians. If the disciples in the church were left to their own devices, they would have said, yep, that guy is no chance. That guy's life is turning around for Jesus. But the Lord works in mysterious ways, as many people love to say. And we get to live lives of expectation that even the most impossible tasks can be completed. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The good news is that it's not you doing it. It's not you and me establishing the city. It's God through ordinary faithfulness, brought together for an ordinary purpose, the building of the dwelling place of God. God is at work in the church. And that's because God has given himself to the church for our good, for the good of the world around and for his glory. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Acts chapter two. Thank you so much for inspiring this word to be written, for preserving it for us and for speaking to us through it. God, thank you for loving us enough to send your son to die for us, to cleanse us so that we might be a fit dwelling place for your Holy Spirit through no good of our own, but through your grace alone. Thank you for the mission of the church, that we are a a group of people devoted to your word, speaking your truth in expectancy in every moment of our lives for you to move. Thank you for giving us a mission that is too big for us to accomplish and for empowering us, encouraging us, reassuring us that it's not our task alone, but that you are the one who's doing it. Lord, I pray that you would give us this sense of expectation. Give us this sense of expectancy in every moment of our lives. Lord, we are too often cynical, impatient, frustrated, I pray that you would give us a message of hope, that you would remind us that we get to set our minds, our eyes on things that are of heaven and not of this world alone. Thank you that when our eyes see and are tempted to panic or tempted to despair, you call us back to live not by what our eyes can see, but by what our ears have heard through your word, that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are always good, and that we can trust you to work all things together for good, for those who love you and are are called according to your purpose. So thank you, Lord, for this purpose you've given us. Thank you for the power to fulfill it. Please encourage us and unite us as we seek to take the next step as a church in faithfulness to what you're calling us through this passage. We ask in Christ's name, amen.